So today uh, we're going to be talking about faith, and faith is the key to Christianity. It's the key to Christians. So it's a little wonder that it has come under attack since the beginning of time. Uh, one of the major areas where this has occurred is in the tension that exists between the belief that salvation comes by faith as opposed to being earned by our works. Uh, this is one of those things that we wrestle with and hold in tension uh, throughout a lot of our lives. And this passage of scripture that we're gonna be looking at today has done much to fuel this debate. So we're gonna start, we're gonna jump right in. Uh, James chapter two, verses 14 through 26. Uh, I'd invite you to read along. It's in your bulletins. If you have your Bibles, we'll be reading from the NIV version, which is also what is printed in your bulletins this morning. But hear these words from James uh, chapter two, verses 14 through 26. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such a faith save them? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well-fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds and I will show you my faith by my deeds. You believe that there is one God, good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. You foolish person, do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Was not our father Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together and his faith was made complete by what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. And he was called God's friend. You see that a person is considered righteous by what they do and not by faith alone. In the same way, was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction. As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. This is God's word. And this is the word that we're gonna be looking at this morning. So faith or works? Do we get to heaven through faith in what Christ has done on the cross? Or do we get there by being good people and doing lots of good things? And Paul seems to have settled this question. In Romans 4, 1 through 5, he says this, What then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh, discovered in this matter? If in fact Abraham was justified by works, he had something to boast about, but not before God. What does scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, wages are not credited as a gift, but as an obligation. However, to the one who does not work, but trusts God, who justifies the ungodly, their faith is credited as righteousness. And then Paul puts it very succinctly here in Romans 3, 28. He says, for we maintain that a person is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Paul is clear that you can't earn your way to heaven, but you have to get there by faith alone and the finished work on the cross. So we should be done there, right? We can just kind of close it up and continue on our worship. Um, but then James uh, has this to say, he says, you see that a person is considered righteous by what they do and not by faith alone. And to make things worse, he proves his point by using the exact same Old Testament scripture that Paul used to prove his point. So the great reformer, uh, Martin Luther, was so disgusted with this passage in James that he wrote the whole letter off and called it an epistle of straw. He apparently did not care for this. Um, this conflict doesn't only raise the question of who is right, is it Paul or James? But it also raises the issue, and I think it's an issue that if we're honest, that a lot of us wrestle with, it's this. the scripture contradict itself? Is this trustworthy? Is this something that I can put my faith in? Is this still living? Is this something that matters in the day-to-day -day world? Does it say one thing and do another? Does it contradict itself within it? And then if so, can I trust it? 
If it contradicts itself, how can I trust it? Is it really inspired by God himself? So we're going to take a close look at this passage in James. And when we finish, we're going to see clearly that Paul and James don't contradict each other at all. In fact, they, they complement each other in the way they view this. They look at the same passage from different angles. So let's see what James is really saying this morning. First is this, as our works demonstrate our faith. Um, so imagine your neighbor is desperate. They've got no food. Uh, their clothing is so old, it's turned into rags. And no matter how hard they try, uh, they can't get a job. You're relaxing, you're watching your TV when there's a knock on the door. Uh, you open the door and there's your neighbor. You haven't seen him for a while. Uh, and you take a look at him and say, wow, Bob, have you lost a lot of weight? Or like, what's going on? We need help, he says. Um, we're starving. If my clothes get any more threadbare, I may as well not wear them at all. And gee, you say, uh, that's really too bad. I wish I could help you out. You know, we're down to just three meals a day here right now. Um, the TV is only a 65 inch. I wanted the 80 inch ULED foot curved screen, but all I got was the flat screen one. Um, I mean, we only have like the premium package of cable. I don't even get like Fox Al Jazeera. I don't know what the premium package. I don't have it anymore. Um, I haven't bought a shirt in, in, in at least two weeks, but you know what? Let me pray for you. James asks, what sort of faith is that? I mean, you hear that, you know that's ridiculous. That's not what you would do when your neighbor comes asking for help. And James says the same things. What sort of faith does that demonstrate? Because real faith is demonstrated by real action. In verse 18 of our passage that we just looked at today, he says, show me your faith without deeds and I will show you my faith by my deeds. The implication is that without works, it is not possible to demonstrate the reality of our faith. In fact, he was just picking up upon Jesus' theme in Matthew 25. In Matthew 25, he says this in verses 37 through 40. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you as a stranger and invite you in or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? The king will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. Jesus had an expectation that faith would be demonstrated in practical good works. We're not even talking about miracles or, or healings here. Uh, we're just talking about doing good things for people in need. Works actively demonstrate the reality of the faith. It is a symptomology of what is going on within ourselves, the, the actions that come out of this faith. But then James then makes the case that intellectual faith is not alone. Um, it's pretty inspiring to read uh, about Peter. Uh, Peter's one of my favorite uh, people in the New Testament. Peter is brash. Peter is bold. Peter says things before he thinks. He reminds me a lot of myself at times. Uh, he has his foot in his mouth a lot. Uh, we are uh, from the same cut from the same cloth oftentimes. Um, and, and one of the most inspiring parts for Peter, because he's messed up so many times because he has gone and done these many things, in, in uh, Matthew 16, in verse 16, Peter has a chance to see who God really is. Peter is given a chance to name him early on. And Jesus speaking to Peter asked him, but what about you? Who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. It's incredible, this mess up Peter, this guy who just kept charging ahead, got a chance. He was one of the first to get a glimpse of who Jesus truly was. And it got Jesus' attention and Jesus pronounced a blessing on Peter because he had received a revelation from the father. But here's something that's so interesting in the midst of this. Demons made amazing confessions of faith. In Mark 1, 24, a demon said to Jesus, I know who you are, the Holy One of God. In Mark 5, 7, another demon shouted at the top of his voice, what do you want with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? You see, they knew who Jesus was. They made the right confession with their lips. They acknowledged who he was, but no demon is ever going to heaven. You see, this is why James is saying that faith alone isn't enough. 
He says, even the demons believe and tremble. That, that word tremble means to shudder, to bristle. They had an accurate sense of who God was. Not only did they believe in the reality of God, but they're smart enough to be scared, to understand the fear of God. They saw him for who he was. But the kind of faith that demons have, the kind of faith where there's nothing more than a confession of the list, where there's nothing more than just a seeing and acknowledging what is there, James calls that dead faith. And James picture, paints a picture that there are essentially two kinds of faith. The first one is intellectual faith. I had to think back on this. I had to think about a, um, a truism, a true law that doesn't really pertain to my life very much. And I had to go back to seventh grade to Mr. Nemsik's physics class. Um, I, I'm sure you guys remember seventh grade and Mr. Nemsik's class very well. Um, but the thing that struck me, something I've always remembered is 9.8 meters per second squared. And I couldn't remember why that mattered. I couldn't remember where it fell. So I went back and I looked up the formula. And the formula is this. I'm gonna put up on the screen. V equals U plus AT. I'm sure you guys all remember this and, and use it in a daily life. You got it? Okay, let me, just in case you're wondering what it means, the letter V stands for the final velocity of an object. U stands for the initial velocity. A is the acceleration, which is 9.8 meters per second squared. And T is the amount of time that's passed. Now, I know that's made it a whole lot clearer for you, and some of you I know it has, actually, because you're math wizards. But here's the question. Is that true? Is that formula there of finding the final velocity of an object, is it true? You know, you might say, well, I guess if that's what your physics teacher taught you, Mr. Nemsik seems like a smart guy. It, it's probably true. And actually, it is true. This is a true fact from physics. It's one of the things that is true about our world. But for us, for most of us anyway, this is just an intellectual faith. It has no practical bearing on our life whatsoever, unless you're jumping out of an airplane or off of a bridge and you need to figure out how fast you're falling and to do all this. But for the most part, this is just something that exists in our head. It is true because we've been told it's true. But here's another mathematical fact. 10 minus 5 equals 5. Now, this one's very practical because if you go to the store after this, if you go, I don't know where you're going to find a $5 meal, but say McDonald's, and you go there and you give them a $10 bill and they give you $2 back, you're going to know really quickly something's off because you know 10 minus 5 is 5. This is something that happens in your day-to-day -day life. It affects your actual reality and the practical way of which you live. And the mathematical fact, it's not just an intellectual faith for you. This is, has a practical meaning in your daily life. So the first kind of faith is intellectual faith is what James calls dead faith. The second kind of faith is what we might call practical faith. It's a living faith. It's real. It means something. There's more to having faith than just saying you've got faith. For instance, uh, if I were to go around and start telling everybody that I'm a giraffe, um, if I did something crazy like that, one, you'd be checking for, for evidence. You'd also probably be looking for a new minister. Um, <laughs> You'd probably say, but a giraffe has four legs, has a very tall neck, has little fuzzy antlers. I've seen one at the Sanford Zoo. I've, I've fed it. I paid the $5 and got the little hay. Um, I know exactly what a giraffe looks like, and you look nothing like a giraffe. But it's exactly the same with a person who claims to be a Christian. Uh, it, it's not enough to just claim it. There has to be evidence, proof of the faith that a person claims to have. Uh, otherwise, it's just a dead faith. Uh, one of the things that's been so great about this study, uh, we, as we've encouraged you to sign up to get a chapter of this every day, as we've walked through this, and uh, one of the th challenges of this summer was to read James for a week. And each day of the week, uh, you'd sign up. On Sunday, you'll get a, a kind of an initial email. Monday through Friday, you get one chapter of it. And to read through it, there's uh, some devotionals that are part of it. But one of the sections is you can write in if you have some insight into that. And it's been so encouraging to read that. We've gotten so many notes in from folks that have read it, and, and something has stuck out or had just meant something. And, and this is one of those times, one of uh, our members here at, at uh, um, uh, it's uh, like Mary Richard wrote in and he said this, um, uh, if we were to be put on trial as a Christian, would there be enough evidence to convict us? Works are the evidence of our faith. And I love that illustration. If we were to be put on trial as a Christian, if they were to set it up in the courtroom, you've got all there, would there be enough evidence to convict you of being a follower of Jesus? 
Um, I remember the first time that I, I encountered this. I was pretty new to my faith. I was in high school. I had, as towards the end of my time, and before I, I came to Jesus, I, um, I I ran with a fairly different crowd. Um, and so I had done some things, and apparently all of my teachers knew this about me. I did not know how fast word spreads around schools until you realize like you have one party when your parents aren't home, and like the whole school knows about it. Um, probably didn't help that my dad was a teacher and knew all of them. Um, but I had really tried to turn my life around. I, I give my life to Jesus, and, and you know it's kind of a slow process oftentimes you kind of start and 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 I was very much on the side of it, 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 the personal salvation I went to camp I accepted Jesus uh, we're, we're working on it, like it's me and him but it hadn't really so much affected the day-to-day life just yet and even so the wake of what was behind me still affected what was going forward there was still the reality of who I was and so there was a bit uh, much to overcome for some of my teachers and I remember uh, my senior history teacher I think Adam junior and senior year Mr. Booth an incredible history teacher uh, tougher than any I ever had in college he was phenomenal but he also was not a Christian and, and far from it. And I remember my senior year just really trying to live this out. I'm helping at church and I'm, uh, we were at some point got into talking about faith and I told him that I was a Christian and he just sort of scoffed at me. He's like, oh, I'll believe that when I see it. Now the t-shirt I was wearing at the time that says you can always relive or you can always retake a class, you can never relive a party, probably did not help my argument <laughs> at the time. Um, I maybe had needed to change some of my clothes also. Um, but there needed to be evidence of my faith and enough evidence to prove that things had changed and I was not yet there. Saying what was going on in my life was not enough to convince him that things had changed. And here's the thing, if faith doesn't lead to transformation and behavior, it's dead faith. John the Baptist pretty much said the same thing in Luke 3, uh, verses 7 through 14, when people responded to his preaching by asking, what shall we do? He told them, give some food to people who don't have any. Give your spare shirt to someone who doesn't have one. When the tax collectors asked him the same question, he said, don't collect more money than you're supposed to. When the soldiers asked, he said, don't intimidate people. Don't falsely accuse people. Be content with your wages. And it's the same thing as what James is saying. Faith without works is dead. Real faith leads to a transformation in our behavior, a living faith. So James uses then two illustrations from the Old Testament to support this argument. And we're gonna look at these and discover two really important faith qualities. The first is the story of Abraham. So this is the one that he captures in here. Uh, James says, was not our father Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together and his faith was made complete by what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. And he was called God's friend. I love that. What an image to be called God's friend. It was a time in Abraham's life when God wanted to see the quality of his faith and called him to sacrifice his son Isaac on the altar. So how did Abraham respond when he was called to do this? Did he argue with God? Did he run away like Jonah did? Did he pretend not to hear? Uh, none of these. It says in Genesis 22:3, Abraham rose early in the morning and loaded his donkey. He rose early in the morning when he was asked to do this. And was he in a hurry to get rid of his son? Um, I've read through that this week and, and thought about that um, as a father. There is no part, there's no part of a loving father that would be in a hurry to do that. There would be so much confliction in my life to think about what it would mean to give up a child to be on this journey. But here's what I do know about Abraham and what I sense in this story because it's clear that Abraham was a loving father. It's clear that Abraham was following God, what he wanted to do is he was eager to please God. He got up early in the morning because he was eager to follow the one who had loved him, the one who had made promises, the one who had showed himself faithful over and over and over again. Abraham got up early because he wanted to follow God fully. 
And, and the first quality of faith that we see that James pulls out is absolute submission. To let God be God, to let him call the shots. God is the only one with absolute wisdom and absolute power, and that qualifies him to be in absolute control. When we started this book, when we started with James 1, when we laid out the foundation for going through this book, one of the things we talked about that James starts with is you have to understand that God is worthy to be trusted. This book was written to Christians. It was written to followers. If this wasn't written to convince people to come into the fold, this was written to people who were already following Jesus that had been sent away, that were in a far off land, that were trying to do this on their own. And he said, if you can get this first part, if you can understand and if you can submit to God, if you can understand that God is the only one who contains wisdom, if you can get the part that God is worthy to be trusted, that God is for you and not against you, if you understand that and you put your trust in him, then all of the rest of this will make sense. Without that, the rest of the book doesn't make sense because it begins with a faith in a God that is for you and not against you, with a faith in a God that is in absolute control, that is full of wisdom. But without that, the rest of the book falls apart. And right here, we see it again because he says absolute submission is one of the key qualities of faith. And it goes back to his beginning argument. This is where we start. This is where the beginning parts of the start to be able to then walk and live and look more like him. The second story is about a woman named Rahab. And James says, in the same way, was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction. So what sort of woman was Rahab? Well, for a start, she was a prostitute. But when she found faith in God, she took a chance. Uh, when the spies came to spy out the city of Jericho, they lodged with her. They stayed with her. And, and, and somebody told the king where they were. Now imagine the difficulty she was facing. The enemies of her people are staying under her roof. The king finds out and sends men who demand that she give them up. What should she do? Now, the easy way out would have been to just hand them over. It would have gotten her off the boat. She would have been cleared. Everything's all good. But she didn't take the easy way out. She had faith in God. And that faith led her to hide the spies. She took a risk. She trusted God. She had faith in him and she took a risk. And that's another quality that James pulls out is faith has a risk-taking element to it as well. And I'm not talking about just doing stupid things for stupid things' sake. You can watch YouTube all day long and see plenty of that, and it's hilarious, a lot of it. But I'm talking about stepping out in faith, a faith in a God that trusts you and loves you, that, that wants the best for you, that has a plan for you, taking a risk and trusting that God. It was that faith-inspired, risk-taking quality that took Rahab from being a prostitute in a pagan country to a new land where she became the great-grandmother of David, the greatest of all the kings, and in line with Jesus himself, Rahab's story was radically changed because she took a risk, but she trusted God enough to step out in faith and take a risk, and her story is still captured. When they write the lineage of Jesus, there she is, right in the midst of it. She became a key player in the role of all this. No one could have imagined that's where her story would go, but because of the faith that she had in God, she took a risk. She took some faith steps, just like Peter did when he stepped out of the boat and walked on water. And sure, Peter sank. Again, I love this guy, but he stepped out. He was the only one that got out of the boat. Faith has that risk-taking quality. Um, Mark Twain once said, 20 years from now, you'll be more disappointed by the things that you didn't do than by the things you did do. Um, and, I, and I can attest to that. I read that earlier this week when, when thinking about this, and I thought about the last 20 years, and I think about the things that have stood out that I wish I had done. Uh, the things that have maybe left some regret or have made me think, gosh, why 
didn't I? And it's very few of those. There are things that I did that I wish I didn't do, but they're not the ones that linger. It's, it, those have moved past. It's those times when I wish I'd taken that step earlier on. I think about uh, Rachel and I, I'm so glad that we did uh, Compass when we did Crown Ministry. We kind of got our financial lives in order and understood God's purpose for our money when we met some of the people in our group that we did. But I, I, I'm so thankful and our life looks so radically different because of it. But if we'd done it seven years earlier, when my best friend who was working for them offered to come down every week from St. Augustine. I mean, he offered to drive an hour and a half every week for 10 weeks to come lead us through that with some of our friends. If we had done that seven years earlier when he first asked, I think about where we could have been now, what God could have done in those seven years uh, before that, what we could have done. Now, again, so grateful what happened, but there are those things when I look back, like that, that's one of those steps that we missed. But if we had taken that risk, if we had just taken that opportunity, Another thing, I'm so glad that I get to work with high school kids with special needs. They're actually uh, at camp right now with Capernaum. I got to see them off on the bus yesterday. It's the first time I've missed summer camp in eight years, so it was uh, really fun to send them off on the bus. A little bit sad. I'm going to go visit them. Don't worry. Um, but uh, it, though, I, I'm so glad that I'm working with them and, and they get to share my life with them and get a chance to share Jesus with them. Um, I wish I had done it the 10 years earlier when God first started stirring that in me. I wish in 2001 when I was sitting in North Carolina at Windy Gap and the first stirrings of that happened and then I started asking about him and I started signing up to serve with Special Olympics and then I would call the night before and cancel because I just got too nervous. I wish in those 10 years, I wish I'd taken some of those steps earlier on because God could have been doing so much more in the midst of it. That's one of those times where, again, things worked out, but if, if I'd just taken that step of faith, if i just risked that, those are the things that stick out as regrets in my life. They're not the things that I did. They're the things that I didn't end up doing. So here's the encouragement. is to step out on faith, to sail away from the safe harbor, to catch the wind in your sails, to explore, to dream, to discover, to put your faith in God when he asks you to do it, and to step out in faith. That's one of those qualities of faith that when it looks alive, and alive faith has a risk-taking quality. That's quite a challenge. Um, for this final point, I'm going to borrow heavily from John Orberg's book, uh, Faith and Doubt. Um, I have not read it, but I found this section, in, and it just seemed to speak so clearly uh, to what we're dealing with here. And he quotes philosopher Michael Novak, who has described three different kinds of convictions. And we all have these different types in all sorts of areas of our lives. But today, I want to think about them in respect to our faith. So first kind of conviction is this, public convictions. Public convictions, they are what I say that I believe. Public beliefs are those convictions that we want other people to think that we believe, even though we may not really believe them. Um, I asked Rachel if this was okay to say, so she said yes. Um, for example, if my wife puts on a dress and asks, does this dress make me look like I have white hips? The correct answer is I didn't even know you had hips. Um, she said that was okay. She didn't get to hear the delivery of it, so you can tell me after. Um, the biblical illustration here, though, is King Herod. After Jesus was born, some visitors from the east, whom we would call wise men, in the story told him about the one who was born king of the Jews. Herod told the wise men, go and make a careful search for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go worship him. Did King Herod have any intention to go worship the, the, the King Jesus who was born? Of course not. He had every intention to go and eradicate a threat to his kingship there. But it made for a good public report because it would get him what he wanted. That is our public beliefs and public convictions. The second are private convictions. These are what I think that I believe. These are the convictions that we think that are truest in ourselves, that we believe that we actually believe. Private convictions are, are that I sincerely think I believe, but it turns out that these may be fickle. Uh, they seem real at the time. They seem real as we think about them. But when we're changed in circumstances, when we're put to the test, we find that they aren't as sure as we thought that they were. Example of this, Peter. Peter, Jesus, I will never deny you. Jesus tells Peter, you're, you're going to deny me three times before the rooster crows. No, 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 Jesus. I will never do that. I will never leave your side. I will never. Of course, 
three times. Rooster crows, Peter's denied Jesus. It all falls apart. In his heart of hearts, I believe Peter believed that he would never deny Jesus, that he truly, in his private convictions, that he would never leave by his side. But when he was put to the crucible, when he was put in the test of all of this, what truly happened, his actual beliefs were different than what was happening and what he privately believed. Because here is what's most true. And these are our core convictions. These reveal what I really do believe by my actions, what I actually really do. Core convictions are revealed by our daily actions. They are the ones that really matter. They are our truest truths. This is the place where our interior secret beliefs show themselves to us in those moments when we are surprised by our reactions, our behaviors, or our postures. Ortberg sums up these three levels like this. The best indicator of my true beliefs and my true purposes are my actions. They always flow out of my mental map about the way things really are. What I say I believe might be bogus. What I think I believe might be fickle, but I never violate my idea about the way things are. I always live in a way that reflects my mental map. I live at the mercy of my ideas about the way things really are, always. And so do you. We are typically at the mercy of our best idea of the way things truly are. And in a perfect world, all three of these would be in perfect congruence. These would all line up. Our public, our private, and our core convictions would all be the same. They would all be wrapped amongst the same things, and they would all line up and overlap, and it would all work out great. But James makes this clear that we are not in a perfect world. You remember, James is a pastor, and he cares for his people. These followers of Jesus that have been spread apart, they have been sent out from their homelands, they have been cast far away, they are away from their earlier beliefs, they are away from their families, some of them they are in different cities, they're in different parts, and they're trying to live in this new way of life of following Jesus. The risen king, they're trying to learn how to live this new life. And James knows that it's hard. But James also wants them to know the truth, what it means to actually wake up every day and to live in this new reality of the kingdom of God drawn near. When someone claims to believe one way, yet acts another, we call this bad faith, or what James might call dead faith. Good faith, living faith, on the other hand, is congruence between what we claim to believe and how we actually live. Living faith means not deceiving others in our public convictions and not deceiving ourselves in our private convictions. Living faith means loving the truth more than we love even ourselves. The testimony of those who claim to know Jesus best, his disciples, was that there was a remarkable congruence about him. What he said and what he thought were in harmony with what he did. He was the man of good faith. He was the man of living faith. He lived it out as a perfect example of what living faith looks like in our world, of all of these areas being perfectly lined up, all of his beliefs lined up. Jesus lived in the perfect harmony of his public, private, and core convictions. And what these all lined up with, what they were all based around, was that his father was good and that his father was loving every part of him lined up with that because he knew his father. He knew his father better than any of us can, that we have the opportunity to. He spent time with him every day. He knew the true heart of his father. All of that lined up. And because of this, his life looked like it. Not only did he live it, but Jesus was also a teacher. And what kind of convictions do you think Jesus most wanted to instill in those who he was teaching? Do you think he wanted to change their public beliefs? Did he want to change their private beliefs? Or was he most concerned with his followers and, and the people he was teaching, their core convictions? And like any good teacher, he's most interested in people's core convictions about the way things truly are. And this is faith at the level where it really matters. 
So how can we change our core convictions if this is how we actually live out of, if our core convictions are at the heart of what we do, if that is actually where our faith comes alive, if that is actually how we live our life, how do we change our core convictions? How do we have a faith that is alive and a mental map that is arranged to the way things actually are under a good and loving father? Isn't this what we actually want when we talk about a living faith? As the disciples watched Jesus, lived alongside him and related to him, they saw that what Jesus said and what Jesus thought lined up perfectly with what Jesus did. As they lived right beside his example, they came to want to live in the same way. The growth of the disciples looked something like this. First, they had faith in Jesus because they saw him and they got to see how he lived it out. So they put their faith in him. Then they began to have the faith of Jesus. It became their core conviction. It became what they lived out of. Their core convictions began to come in the line with his. Faith involves certain beliefs. Faith involves an attitude of hope and confidence. But at its core, faith is trusting a person. Living faith is trusting a person, and that person is Jesus Christ. And it's possible to change our behaviors without changing our core convictions. You can put a lot of hard work into changing the way that you live and act. Uh, It is possible to do that. But to do so, we have to work, to override all of our natural impulses, to strive against our body and our mind. It is a constant battle when we're trying to just change the things that are out here without changing what's going on in here. However, if you and I begin to trust in Jesus, if we trust that Jesus had it right, if we trust that Jesus, the God that he knew, the good and loving father that he knew that he spent time with is the same one that loves and and, and wants the best for us, then slowly we come to alter our core convictions and these same behaviors that are hard work at first become our nature. Our core beliefs, our convictions and purposes. Interestingly, Jesus never said, believe my arguments. He never said, believe my convictions. He never said, believe the things I believe. What he said was, follow me. This is how things change. Peter did exactly that. When he first encountered trials, his public and private beliefs betrayed him. But as he saw the risen Jesus, as he spent time with him and his core convictions were so radically altered that he became the foundation of the church that we know today. That when he was put to trial and when he was eventually led to death upside down on a cross and dying, he believed it so much that he went to his death in the most painful and excruciating way of an upside down cross. And the whole time preaching, there's no name under heaven by which men can be saved. There's no other name other than Jesus. And that's the kind of faith that can only be shaped by Jesus himself. So let's finish by going back to our original question. Does scripture contradict itself? Are Paul and James at odds with each other? Uh, Not at all. The key to the whole mystery is found in verse 26 in our passage. It says this, as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. James uses an analogy to show the relationship of faith to works. It is like the body that contains the human spirit. If a live body has the human spirit within it, It's alive. The body has a spirit within it. It is alive. If the spirit is gone, then the body is dead. In the same way, a living faith has the works already within it waiting to be done. If not, then that faith is dead. It is not alive. It is faith alone that saves us. It is faith in God. It is the grace of Jesus alone that saves us. But if that faith does not produce good works then it's not a real living faith. And and here's the thing. That's my hope for you. That's Jesus' hope for you. That's God's hope for you. That's the hope for this church, that you would have a living faith, that your faith would be alive in you, that you would have a faith 
that is alive, that is Jesus' desire for his disciples to have their core convictions changed so that they live the right mental map of the world. That they would be so rewired. Jesus wanted his disciples to understand that God loved them, that he is a good father, that God wants to give to them so that they can look more and love more like Jesus and love the people around them, that God has given them the love. That's God's desire for you and I as well. The, this book that James has written 2,000 years ago to the first followers of Jesus is the same hope for you and I today. We talked about in the first week that there are commands, that there are laws, there are things that we're told to do regardless of where we are. And this is one of those things. Regardless of the situation we find ourselves in, our faith is to produce good works. Our faith is to be alive. Our faith is to make an impact on those that are around us. That is true today as it was then. This doesn't change because of the context we're in. It stays the same, that our faith should be alive and that it should impact those around us. That we, we would rightly know God. That, that is a part of what we are to do, that we need to have such a clear understanding of who God is. That's why we try to teach right theology so much. That's why we try to teach you in such a clear way of who God is but that our faith would be alive and change our lives as well. Um, last week, Zach said something, and I, it rung really true for me. He said this, if you um, tend to believe that your faith is only about your actions, uh, on the one side of the spectrum, there is faith that is only believes in making the world right, um, that is all about social justice, uh, that is all about fixing everything on, but, but that the interior life, that the part of grace, that if it's all about works and, and grace is a, little, a very small part of that. He said, the longer you spend around Jesus, the longer you spend around church, the more in the middle you'll become because you'll start to understand that what's happening in your interior life, what God is doing through grace becomes more and more important and that people need to understand the truth of who God is. And if you start on the other end of the spectrum where it's only about grace, and this is where I started, where it's only about being saved from hell, where it's only about having a personal salvation and it's just you and God, and as long as everything is right there, uh, this part doesn't matter so much. But the longer you spend around Jesus in the church, you start to understand that God actually cares about the world as well and that our faith is to produce good works. This is where I, I rung so true because I started so clearly on this end where as long as you get it right, as long as you understand that Jesus died, he was resurrected, he saved you from your sin, if that's just it, um, that's fine. And, and there is truth in that, but it's not the whole truth because it was never meant to be separated. These two things were never meant to be two different pieces. They are meant to be one part of the same whole that what happens in our life through grace and what happens in the world are together. These are both pictures of the gospel. The gospel cares about the world and cares about ourselves because grace happens in an instant. It happens throughout our lives and it happens through eternity. This faith, living faith affects all three of those. And that is the hope for us. And so the challenge is if you find yourself on one side or the other of these arguments of faith and deeds is to spend the time asking, where do I need to move? What do I need to ask God to move in my life? How do I need to look more and love more like Jesus? How do I need to spend more time understanding who Jesus understood God is? We're gonna keep talking about that throughout this summer. But I wanted to give you a picture of what this faith made alive looks like. Uh, I'm really excited about this. We are getting ready to send a group of our students to the Dominican Republic in the coming weeks. So I'm gonna invite Chad to come up on stage. Chad is our uh, student minister here. And uh, Chad is, and Kara, why don't you both come up? Um, Chad and Kara are leading a group of 15 students. They're heading to the DR in just a couple of weeks. Uh, and they're gonna go learn more about poverty. They're gonna go share their faith with each other. They're gonna go learn uh, from some folks that are down there. They're gonna get a chance to partner with Children of the Nations, who we partner with in Africa and the Dominican Republic. Uh, that Their hope is to change the world by changing the lives of kids as they feed them, as they teach them, as they teach them who God is, that they would have the opportunity to change their country from within. And Chad and Kara are getting ready to take some students down there. And what all are you guys doing while you're there? 
So basically what we're doing is going to consist of two or three things. We're going to spend the first half of each day with our uh, high school students, the uh, 16 high school students that are going with us, sitting in a training seminar with about uh, 20 to 30 of the Dominican high school students that they've identified as spiritual leaders and uh, uh, people that have influence among their peers. And we're going to talk about what it looks like to be uh, Christians here in the U.S. versus what it looks like to be a Christian in the Dominican Republic. We're going to look at what servant leadership is, because not all of our students and not all of their students have particular titles, but they all have influence, and they all have an ability to help people learn to live more and love more like Jesus. Uh, we're also going to spend some time looking at uh, what it looks like to share our testimonies, and uh, we're also going to work on some personal holiness plans so that we can commit to doing things that will help us to encounter God in our lives throughout the year. And so uh, that's how we're going to spend our mornings, and in the afternoons we're going to take our students, and we're going to take their students, and we're going to... Uh, mix and pour concrete floors in the houses uh, in some of the villages there so that these folks, when the rains come uh, in, the, in the rainy months there, won't lose everything because uh, of you know, the way that things shift there when there's not concrete floors. That's great. Um, they're going down there to t- share with each other what does a faith made alive look like. Together, uh, they're, not, they're not going down there to tell the, the, the students there, this is how you do it. And it's not just the other way. Together, they're going to be digging into the word together. Together, they're going to be looking at what does a faith alive look like. And they're going to learn from one another. They're going to serve together. Some of these students are going to be serving in their houses. They're going to be mixing concrete together. I love this. This is just a picture, and it's not the only picture. Our faith alive looks so many different ways. It looks uh, in our daily life, in our work, in our homes, and all this. But I wanted to highlight a way, because these are our students. We say here at Summit, there are no height restrictions and no age restrictions to becoming a servant of God, to being a part of this church. And this is so true here. And what I love about this picture of these 16 students, how many of them are from Lake Mary? We have, I think, uh, six or eight of them are here. Yeah, about half. So we are, you know, we have three campuses, Herndon being by far our largest. And then half of the students are coming just from here. It speaks to the faith and the character of our students. So I'm going to invite any of the students that are going on the trip that are here. I see Sydney here. Um, And one of the things that we get to do when we send trips uh, overseas and we have a chance to go visit uh, with some of our ministry partners, we have a chance to commission them. And so I'm going to invite us to do that today. So if you are able to stand, I would invite you to stand for this commissioning prayer. At the beginning, I'm going to read the first part, and then I'm going to invite you to read alongside of me the second part of this prayer. All who take upon themselves the name of Christ are called into ministries of love and service by the example of Christ. As these members of our community begin their work among the people of the Dominican Republic, we pray the blessings of God and this community upon their endeavors. We recognize you as ambassadors of this congregation, ministry, the people of the Dominican Republic, and dedicate you to service in the name of Jesus Christ. Through our prayers, we will be united with you in your work. May God richly bless your labors. Amen. You may be seated. Thank you, guys. Appreciate it.